great reminder, really, of what the 4th of July is all about. When we stop and think about this holiday and what it means to us as Americans, we are reminded of the freedom that we have as Americans, right? But you know what's more important than the freedoms we enjoy as Americans? It's the freedom that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. We have been freed from the penalty of sin. What does Paul tell us in Romans? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have been given freedom from sin, freedom from Satan, freedom from the bondage that you and I once knew. And so as we sing about Jesus, thank you, we are reminded uh, by the words of that song, your perfect sacrifice that has brought us near. We were the enemies of God, the enemies of Christ, and now we're not. So in that is the great freedom that so many people long for. Even I would submit to you the freedom that our founding fathers longed for when they left England and landed on the shores here in America and set up for us a nation in which we could serve and worship and uh, understand truly who our great God is. So uh, celebrate the 4th of July for sure, but more importantly, celebrate the freedom that is yours in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, then can I say to you, you really don't know what freedom is until you have the freedom from the bondage of sin. Well, this morning we're going to continue our study in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. So if you would take your copy of the scriptures, please, and open to this prison epistle that Paul penned to the Philippian believers. He, he penned, it's interesting that we study about uh, freedom, or we, we reminded of freedom on the 4th of July when we understand that Paul wrote from prison. Okay, He wasn't free, he was in bonds, he was in bondage. But this morning we're going to take a look at Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of the chapter and you say, boy, that's a lot of passages, that's a lot of verses that you got to cover this morning, Pastor. Well, there really wasn't a good place to break. So anyway, we're going to try and get through those 11 verses. But let me say, first of all, it's good to be back home. We enjoyed our vacation and had a great opportunity to help Barb's mom and dad uh, get some projects done at their house that they couldn't do. Uh, We had a wonderful time with family. Of that time, we spent probably four or five days uh, stretched out with uh, all of Barb's family for the most part. Extended family, brothers and sisters, it was good just to catch up and to see what God is doing in their lives. Um, And then last Sunday, we had a super special Sunday, unexpected treat. Uh, We were unsure about where we would attend church on Sunday morning, so as we were checking things out, um, we... Kind of as we were planning our trip back, we thought, well, we'll go to this particular church. And then we thought, well, it is a little bit of a drive, so maybe we will look for someplace else to go um, closer. And we wrestled back and forth. We looked some things up online and finally decided, yes, you know what, we're just going to go. We're going to make that drive. We're going to go to the church where we at least know one person there. Well, we actually knew three people, the pastor, uh, because he was at school when we were at school, and then another guy who used to come visit us in South Africa. Uh, so we thought we would 
see Bill, and we thought we would see the Ashleys, and we would have a, just a good time worshiping, and, and then we would go on our way and do whatever it was that we were going to do on the Sunday afternoon. Well, as we walked through the doors, we were greeted by the greeters, and then uh, a lady by the name of Polly Strong, now you might not know that name, but Polly is an old-time missionary uh, with Baptist Mid-Missions, and we knew her because she spoke at our university when we went to school there uh, as, a, as a guest missionary speaker. Uh, and so I, I, I said, so you are a missionary, right, Polly? And she says, oh, yeah, 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 how do you know? I said, well, we have a missions background and so on and so forth. She said, well, wh- where did you serve? I said, South Africa. She says, oh, do you know John and Penny Jackson? I said, well, yeah, of course. And John was the man who uh, kind of mentored me uh, very close. So we actually ended up in South Africa serving God together with the Jacksons um, before God brought them back to the States to be the directors of, our, of the African ministries in our particular mission. And she says, well, they're here this morning. I said, no way. Yes, they're here this morning. And and you can go in there and you'll find them right inside the worship center. Uh, But we didn't even get that far because they were in the office. And as they were walking out, uh, John looked at me and he says, holy mackerel. That was one of his sayings. He, He says, look who's here. And so we hugged and we caught up a little bit and we walked in and we worshiped together. What a blessing it was. Uh, you know, we kind of picked up right where we left off in South Africa so many years ago. In fact, let me tell you, John came to our church here at Calvary Baptist Church, the first soccer clinic we had. John uh, helped us run that soccer clinic, okay? Uh, so it was just a blessing to be reunited, catch up what God's doing in their family, uh, and, and he, they could catch up with what God's doing in our family. But that wasn't where the surprises ended. As we walked in, there was another young lady that we went to school with. Her name is Becky. Um, and she said, hey, Becky. Or she said, hey, Tim, I'm Becky. Do you remember me? I said, yeah, I remember you. Well, her brother is the pastor of that church in, in Ohio. And um, they're celebrating their 30th anniversary of ministry there. In fact, it happened during COVID, but because it was COVID, they couldn't have a celebration. So they celebrated on that particular Sunday. So Becky was there as uh, a part of the family to, to just celebrate together. And as I'm talking to Becky, another lady says, hey, I know you. And I looked at her and I says, yeah, you look familiar. She says, I'm Ruthie's sister. From Cincinnati, where Larry King is the interim pastor. So you want to talk about a small world? We got to see Ruthie's sister. We got to see the, the Becky. We got to see the, the Jacksons. And we got to see the Ashleys. And we just had a great time worshiping God together. Now, none of that was planned. That all just happened as God's extra special treat to us on vacation. So uh, we're thankful for that. And just, the, you know what? There's nothing like the bond we share in Jesus Christ. And so as we celebrate those bonds, we take advantage of what God does for us and through us, and we're excited. You know, last Sunday, we are not last Sunday, last Sunday, Ben preached as well as the Sunday before that, but before that, we talked about a couple of godly characters from the book of Philippians. Epaphroditus was one of them. And so as we looked at Epaphroditus and Timothy, we saw how God uses faithful people and God just kind of extends their reach, extends their ministries into paths that they really didn't plan. Uh, and, and so we're thankful for the way God uses his reach in our lives as well. So this morning as we jump back into the book of Philippians, we're going to move on from those godly examples that Paul gave us in Timothy and Epaphroditus and he tells us now, hey, listen, I got some things I've got to communicate to you. Um, They're a little difficult for me to communicate to you, but you need to hear them. 
Okay, And so as he introduces this topic to his readers, his beloved Philippian brothers and sisters in Christ, um, he reminds them about the theme of the book of Philippians. The theme of the book of Philippians is what? It's joy and rejoicing. So even though Paul says, I've got some difficult things I've got to talk to you about, I want you to remember that as children of God, followers of Christ, we should, make our, we should set our minds on the fact that we are supposed to be individuals who rejoice. So as we get started this morning, I want to ask you to stand as we read from God's word. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 should be on the screen for you. We'll read together, starting with verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul writes, read with me please. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh." Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." Let us ask God to bless our time together in this wonderful passage of Scripture. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you so much for the Word of God. We know that the Word of God is the only means by which you communicate to us today. It's the only way in which we are able to be in a right relationship with you. It's through the Word of God that you tell us how to come to know Jesus as our Savior. It's through the Word of God that we grow in our walk with you. It's through the Word of God that we are protected from false teachers. Uh, And boy, they do abound today. There are so many uh, people teaching that which is not true out there today. It's, it's all over the place. So we ask that you'd help us to be careful as we uh, strive to become more like Jesus. We'll follow you, we'll follow your word, and we'll follow the teachings that we find there in the pages of scripture. Bless our time together as we study. Encourage us through the word of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So as I said, Paul's going to embark upon a little bit of a difficult topic for him, uh, a topic that he doesn't really... Uh, enjoy delving into, but you know what? Sometimes we have to jump into those 
topics as we, as we honor the Word of God and teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. So Paul starts out by telling us in verses 1 and 2 to beware of those who worship other gods. Beware. You know what that, you know, the idea of beware means? Be on your guard. Look out. Keep your eyes on something that's going to keep you centered in who God is, focused on who God is. Beware, first of all, of those who worship other gods. Now, let me tell you right at the get-go here that Paul is not coming to a conclusion. You know, you look at that word finally in verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. And if I start off with that word finally, you're going to say, all right, this is almost over already. Don't have to worry about a long message today. Well, don't get your hopes up. Um, but anyway, when Paul uses that word finally, he's really using it more as a continuation, not a conclusion. This is not the conclusion of the chapter, or I mean the conclusion of the book of Philippians because we're really only halfway into the book. Paul says, finally, my brethren. Now, when you think of that phrase, finally, I don't want you to think of it as being the end. Um, you know what? We do kind of similar things in our conversations on a daily basis. You might not realize that, but uh, we might say, oh, just one more thing for you to consider. Now, that one more thing could turn into an hour-long conversation. We've experienced this in our deacons' meetings, right? Uh, we, we have our meetings, and we wrap everything up in the, in the room over there. And then uh, as we have our closing prayer, and we get up, and we pack our things up, and we start to make our way to the door, we get to the foyer, and somebody says, oh, and we begin another conversation. Sometimes the conversation is, has nothing to do with deacon matters. It's, it's often personal things uh, or something about the computer. Somebody has a question for Ben about the computer. Or we talk about our favorite sports teams or what they're doing or not doing is the case of the Yankees right now. Um, but anyway, the, we, we have these conversations. And oftentimes we end up being here for another half an hour, 40 minutes, just carrying on conversations when we said finally quite a long time ago. Um, sometimes preachers do that. I remember sitting in homiletics class and Dr. Hauk saying to us as students in homiletics class, never use the phrase in conclusion unless you're ready to conclude. Because if you say in conclusion, you know what happens? You guys do it. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but you know what you do? Close up your Bible, you say, oh, he said in conclusion, so you know what, it must be. So if you say in conclusion, then guess what? They're going to start tuning you out. They're going to start winding down, okay? So never use that phrase in conclusion unless you're concluding. So Paul's not concluding, but he did use that phrase finally. But really what that phrase means, it means in addition to, if you were to look it up in the Greek, or it means uh, let me, furthermore, let me add to this conversation a little bit. Don't tune Paul out here in chapter 3. He has some important things that he wants to communicate to those children that he dearly loves, coming from a man who is in love with God himself. So as, we've, as we understand that Paul's not concluding, he's got some information for us. This is consistent and constant rejoicing, Paul wants us to to put that in the, in the forefront of our mind as he's going to talk about this difficult thing. He says, rejoice in the Lord. We've already met, reminded you that the theme for the book of Philippians is rejoicing. So even though he's going to talk about something that's difficult, something that's challenging, something that they really need to hear, he says, I want to remind you, first of all, as we get started, to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. 
Now, we've talked about this idea of joy and rejoicing. And the joy that Paul is talking about here is, is not happiness. It has nothing to do with happiness. Because happiness deals with our circumstances. Now, you might be sitting here this morning and you might not be very happy. Because your circumstances in life are challenging. Things are kind of pressing in on you or people are, are weighing you down. You may not be happy. You may have some serious things that you're working through. But don't ever let those things steal your joy from you. Because our joy is not seated in the circumstances of this life. You remember where our joy is seated, right? It's seated in where we will spend eternity. And as the children of God, we will spend eternity in a place called heaven that God has prepared for us to go. In fact, remember what Jesus said? I go to prepare a place for you. And when, I, when it's all ready, I'm coming back to get you. I'm going to take you home to be with me for all of eternity. Hallelujah. Okay? So no matter what goes on in this life, in this world, our joy is secure because it's founded and rooted in our eternal home. And you know what? Nothing can take that eternal home away from us. Now, some of us maybe have experienced difficulties and hardships and have lost our earthly dwelling. Friend told me one time, uh, I lost everything because I was, a, I was stupid and I did things I shouldn't have done and I lost it all. And then I came to Christ and Christ has blessed me in so many ways. Not just, not necessarily in financial things, but in a family that's on fire, a family that's serving him, loving him, and all the kids are saved. And so those kinds of things, we rejoice in what God is doing, not because of our earthly home, but because of our heavenly home and where he's promised for us to be for all of eternity. Paul goes on in this chapter, in this very opening verses of chapter three, and he gives us cautious concerns. And he wants us to understand that as Christians, as followers of Christ, there are some things that we need to be concerned about. He says, for to me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. You see, Paul does not remind or doesn't, re, doesn't mind repeating himself here. He believes it will be better for the Philippians to repeat himself, for them to hear his warnings many times than for them to miss it because he hasn't said it enough. Here's an example of this in current Calvary Baptist Church life, okay? You and I, we know the definition of faith, right? How many times have we talked about the definition of faith? What is faith? And, and I could ask some, I could say, I could throw... Excuse me, I could throw that out to you and I could say, what is faith? And you would tell me that faith is believing that God is able to do what he says he will do and ordering my life accordingly. That's how we define faith, right? And I say it often. Not because I don't think you guys know it, but you know what? Sometimes people come up to me and say, Pastor, I, 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 you know, I, I'm living in faith. I say, what's faith? Well, uh, and they have no idea. They tell me that faith is what this person on the radio said or this person on the internet said or I'm living by faith. Okay, so can you tell me where that comes from in God's word? Uh, uh, um, no. So Paul's repeating it. He's saying this is what you need to hear. You need to understand this. If you and I are living by faith, what we're living by ought to be founded in God's word. If, we've, if we're living by something that's not founded in God's word, then I'm sorry, but you're not living in faith. 
You're living by feelings. You're living by emotions. You're living by something that came into your mind. We need to stake our lives on the word of God and live by faith, by the word of God. Faith is believing that God is able to do what he said he will do and ordering my life accordingly. That's faith. When I was growing up, I remember hearing faith being defined as, you know, believing that, uh, you know, believing in something you can't see but acting upon it as though you can see. In other words, kind of like an existential leap in the dark. That's not what faith is. Remember the song we sing? My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed, but in the what? The ever-living word of God. That's where my faith is. That's where our faith must be firmly planted in the word of God. So Paul says, it's not tedious for me to repeat things. You know what? Repetition is a good thing. Hence, we're doing the Froneo project. Okay, what's the Froneo project where we twice a day or once a day we read a passage of scripture two times out loud with our family. We repeat it over and over and over and over again. And you know what? As you repeat God's word, it becomes embedded in your mind. It becomes embedded in your heart. It becomes that which helps you make your decisions as you face them in daily life. Repetition is a good thing. Paul has called, or God has called us to certain things in the Christian life. And Paul repeats them again. Remember over in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, Paul reminds the Philippian believers what they have been called to. Let me just remind you what that is. Chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, he says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which is which you saw in me and now here is in me. You see, Paul says, you and I have one goal as Christians, and that's to live for Christ. And that's to glorify God by the life we live. And that may lead to suffering. That may lead to persecution. But that's okay. You can still rejoice. So repetition is a good thing. We also see that reviewing truth is essential. Paul says, for you it is safe if I repeat myself. Over and over again in the letter to the Philippians, we see Paul is concerned for the well-being of the Philippian believers. Here Paul is concerned about about the fact that the Philippians are being bombarded with false teaching. He doesn't want them to fall into the trap of false teaching. Make no mistake, false teaching has always abounded. And as it was prevalent in Paul's day when he was writing to the Philippians, it is prevalent today as well. And remember this. Satan does not wrap up false teaching with a big bow that says this is false. He packages it so nice and so neat and so attractively that you and I, if we're not careful, we'll fall into it. We'll be deceived by it. We'll be caught up in it. 
That's why it's so important that you and I must be students of the book. We must be students of the word of God. We must let the word of God teach us and govern our lives. It can't be what so-and-so said. That's why it's so important for us to search the scriptures. You've heard me say it over and over again. If the Apostle Paul could say, be like the Bereans, search the scriptures, find out, make sure that what I'm saying to you is true, why should it be any less of me? Search the scriptures, make sure that what Pastor Tim is preaching from on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday night or any time we get together, make sure that it is from the word of God. We've said that that word homiletics, that word preaching, is to say the same thing about God's word. When I open God's word, I need to repeat to you what God's word is saying. Not my own ideas, not what I think, not what I wish. But what the word of God says. Paul's philosophy here is better safe than sorry. It's better for me to say it over and over and over again than for me to say it once and you miss it. I've told you before about the the Bible class that I taught when I was in South Africa. One of the the guy called me up. He says, hey, will you teach our Bible class for, uh, for the year? Sure. I had four opportunities during the week to teach Bible in a public school. I'm, sitting in one, I'm standing up in one class teaching, and I'm giving the gospel presentation as I did almost every class period. And one of the girls says, Pastor Mowers, I have a question. Sure, what's your question? How come you tell us the same thing every lesson? I said, I tell you the same thing every lesson because when I ask you the, the question, you don't give me the right answer. So you don't know how to trust Jesus as your Savior. You need to know that answer. You need to know what it means to trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior because it is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life, and if you don't get it right, you're going to go to hell. (gasps) Yeah, in a public school. They didn't ask me to come back the next year, but whatever. Um, I was determined that they were going to get the truth week after week so they would know what they had to do to trust Jesus Christ. And I told her, until you get it right... You're going to keep hearing it. Paul said, repetition is good. It's good for me to tell you that again and again and again and again till you get it, till you understand it. So here at Calvary Baptist Church, we're going to talk about faith again and again and again till we all get it, till we understand it. We're going to talk about Bible truth, faith, and other things. No matter what it is from the Word of God, we're going to talk about it because that is our source. That is our authority, and we'll never, we'll never stray from it. So reviewing the truth is absolutely essential. So Paul now is going to move on. He's going to move on from beware of worship other gods to the warning. Warning. You remember, I don't know if you watched it when you were growing up. I did. I loved the TV show. Now there's a remake to it. It's not quite as good. Um, Lost in Space. Remember the robot? Warning. Warning. Does not compute. Does not compute. Warning. Warning. The, the robot was there to warn the Robinson family of what was going on. If they got into trouble, the robot often put himself in danger to give the warning. Uh, stay away. Don't get caught up in that. Be careful. Hey, pay attention. Warning. That's what Paul is saying. Don't be confident in fleshly things. Don't be confident in the things that you know about yourself. Don't follow bad examples. Because you know what? There's a lot of bad examples out there that we could follow. 
And again, they don't have stamped on them bad example. Okay? Satan makes them look good, makes them look pristine, makes them sound good in hopes that we might follow them and what they're telling us to do. You've heard me say before that there's a guy on TV has really slick hair, has a nice suit, and he gets up every Sunday morning and he says, repeat after me, and he says some creed that he repeats, and then he sets his Bible down over here and he never goes back to it again. Don't follow him. You know what's sad? I've heard people, not in this church, but in other churches, I really like listening to him. In fact, the deacon in a former church of mine said, "Ah, why do you have such a problem with him? I said, well, because he doesn't use God's word when he preaches. That's why I have a problem with him. I'm not sure. And then I heard him on the news. On, I think he was on CNN one time. Asked, asked about the plan of salvation. He didn't have a clue how to present the plan of salvation to somebody else. If you want to know his name, I'll tell it to you afterwards. I'm going to tell it to you now. Okay? You probably know who it is already. But you see, there are so many people that look so good and talk so well. But they leave out God's word. We don't want to be tempted to follow them. We need the word of God to guide us not to follow them. You've heard me tell you before also about counterfeit bills. What's the best way of detecting counterfeit bills? Is you study the real thing. They pass the real thing underneath your hands. You feel it. You touch it. I go into stores, and I because I used to work at Olympia, okay, and, and our loss prevention guy came, he's, and he gave, us, he gave us a counterfeit bill, and he says, how do you, you know, and it looked pretty good, and we're, we're using the marker on it, and it worked, you know, the marker didn't pick up anything, and uh, he says, you just took a counterfeit bill. I said, how do you know? He says, well, feel the money. Feel the money. You feel around the president's collar. You know how the presidents are all dressed up, kind of similar. You feel around the president's collar. If you don't feel a texture, a rough texture around the president's collar, it's a fake bill. You know they cannot duplicate that. There's no way they can duplicate that fake texture on the bill. You feel it. You know it. You study it. You have to know the truth in order to catch what is false. Paul says, beware, don't get caught up following that which is false. And so he gives a little bit of his own testimony here in Philippians chapter 3. First of all, we see Paul the protector. Okay, Paul the protector. What is he saying? He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the dogs. Now, some of you have seen signs like this, right? Beware of the dog. We used, to, we used to encounter these kinds of signs all the time in South Africa because everybody had a dog or two or three dogs, okay? Um, for us, though, our dog beware sign in South Africa would have looked something like this. And they were miniature dachshunds at that, okay? However, our dog Ollie had this really big dog bark. And we would have people come and knock on our door and... Ollie would go nuts. And I remember one day, this guy comes to the door. And, uh, you know, I opened the door about this far, looked through. Uh, I didn't recognize the person. And he says, I want money. I says, oh, okay. I said, uh, and, and Ollie's going nuts. And uh, I, I said, uh, I don't give out money. I've got some food here. I'll give you some food. I've got some literature you can take with the food and you can read it. Um, uh, you know, would be happy to talk to you about other things, talk to you about the Lord. I want money. I said, I'm not going to give you any money. He says, you don't understand. I want money. 
I said, you don't understand. I don't give money, and if you don't stop asking for it and stop being aggressive, I'm going to introduce you to my dog. And he's barking like crazy. He's like, no, sir, no, boss, no, sir. I said, okay, would you like the food? Okay, boss. So he took the food, and he went on his way. You see, when we think of dogs, we think of our pets, right? We think of those things that rumble around our house and they protect us. They jump up on our laps, sometimes regardless of the size, because uh, they don't realize how big or small they are. They just jump up there and say, pet me, love me. They drool on us. They slobber on us. Uh, we love our pets, right? Well, when Paul says, beware of the dogs, he's not talking about a pet. He's not talking about the family dog that we picked out and we've we've loved on and has worked its way into our lives. He's talking about an animal that scavenges around the city and that everybody hated and nobody liked. You see, in New Testament times, dogs were not man's best friends. They were hated scavengers because they roamed the fields and the streets feeding on dead bodies or any other rubbish they could sink their teeth into. Dogs were considered unclean animals, and therefore animals that you and I, or the Jews of the day, or the Christians of the day, should keep away from. You remember that the Jews used the term dog to describe impure and profane people. In fact, sometimes the Jews even called Samaritans dogs, and Gentiles were considered excuse me, dogs by the Jewish people. But you see what you see what Paul is doing here. He's taking false prophets, and he's calling them dogs. Beware of the false prophets, because they teach impure doctrine. They're governed by greedy desire for more and more money. Their God is really their appetite, their their desire to have more things, and consume those things upon their lusts. Paul warns them, beware of the dogs. He also says, beware of evil workers. Let's start with the word workers first. This word was used to describe those that promoted religion. Not Christ, not God, but promoted religion. Now, it was no different than it is now. Not all religions are good. Not all religions are pleasing to God. Paul put the word evil in front of workers to differentiate them from those faithful servants of God and those dogs that promoted a nicely packaged religion that was full of falsehood and deception. I think Paul chose a very appropriate term when he called them evil workers. They are people who are intentionally leading others astray to follow after their own ideas and their own teachings. They package things up in a nice, pretty way that people will readily accept without understanding the consequences of what they're teaching. Paul says, beware of evil workers. And again, let me admonish you today to be careful of who you listen to on the radio. Just because it's called Christian radio doesn't necessarily mean that the person that's teaching from that time slot is somebody you should be listening to. Be careful of what you watch on the internet. Just because when you type into Google Christian's Christian speaker doesn't mean that who you get that's going to come up is going to be somebody that you should be listening to. Christian doesn't necessarily mean what the Bible defines as a Christian. So please be careful who you listen to, who you watch, who you read. 
If you have questions, please speak to somebody who can help you determine whether they are good teachers or not good teachers. It's so very important to make sure that we are following the word of God. I've had people say, Pastor, you need to listen to this guy. And I listen to him and I look for the Bible teaching and it's not there. We must be individuals who practice discernment. It's essential in our world today. So he says, beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. See, now Paul's going overboard here. He's using not so nice terms. Well, Actually, Paul's being sarcastic here, okay? Uh, He was pretty good at being sarcastic, and here's one of those times where his sarcasm was was used to make a very clear point. In the Greek, the word mutilation, which is the word here in our text, is very much like the word circumcision, okay? Now, we know what circumcision is. Uh, it's, It's something that's helpful, it's beneficial, it's good to practice. It's been medically proven to be so. Okay, but in the, in the Greek, the word mutilation is kat, katatome, which means to cut. Okay, then there's the word for circumcision, which is peritome, which means to cut around, to be very specific in how you cut. There's a difference. Okay, we, we must understand. So in the Philippian church, some were trying to force circumcision on the Philippian believers, on those who came to know Christ or wanted to be a follower of Jesus. So with this play on words, Paul is suggesting that those that make such a legalistic requirement for circumcision don't really understand salvation, and neither do they understand circumcision. They've got it both wrong. And yet they were so determined, so set on, this is what you must do to follow Jesus. No, it's not what you must do to follow Jesus. You must confess your sins. You must trust in the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. You must follow him. doesn't have anything to do with what you do physically, outwardly. It's everything to do with following Jesus' teaching. So today it may not be circumcision, but there are so many people out there that are trying to make other things a determination of spirituality. And it really isn't. Here's here's an example. I was at the hardware store this week, and I was asking some information from one of the workers. And as he raised his arm up, he had a, a tattoo on his arm. It was a tattoo of a cross. And so as we had our conversation, I said, so tell me about your tattoo. I'm interested in your tattoo. And uh, he says, well, he says, my tattoo, uh, it used to be this, which had to do with Egyptian mythology. He said, and so I wanted it covered it up because I became a follower of Christ and I, I didn't want that on my arm. So I covered it up with a cross. And so what was at the bottom was now the, the stones that surrounded the base of the cross, and then the cross came up. And so we had, we must have talked for half an hour, 40 minutes about Christ. Now, there was a time when probably, well, not probably, even myself, I would have said, ah, person with a tattoo, what's the matter with that guy? <laughs> I've changed my ideas over time. Not that I'm ready to go get a tattoo, don't worry about that. But you know what? Having a tattoo on your body, if it's a good thing, doesn't necessarily mean that you're a bad person. Tattoos at one point in time communicated a different message than they communicate today. A person having a tattoo doesn't necessarily mean that they're a non-spiritual individual. 
They may be using a tattoo to communicate their spirituality, their love for Christ. And when you talk to this guy, you'll know that he loves Jesus. You'll know that he's a follower of Jesus. In fact, he's probably tuning in this morning. He told me he was going to. So praise God that we have these opportunities. Don't let the preconceived ideas of what religion is cloud your mission of communicating Christ to others. Beware of the nonsense that Satan wants to spread about religion when we should be focused on what Christianity is. We should be focused on who Christ is and what Christ came to accomplish. Paul is being the protector here. He's looking out for his beloved sheep and he's telling us that if we want to be on the right track, we must be sure we're following proper teaching, which can only be found right here in this book. Nowhere else. As we move on to verses 3 through 6, we see Paul the purebred. Now, you know that we, most of you know that we had dachshunds. We brought three dachshunds back from South Africa. Um, We had two girls and we had one boy. Now, my favorite was the boy. His name was Ollie. We named him after a rugby player. Ollie had a great pedigree. His mother, Buffy, our first dachshund, had a very, a very good pedigree. Saucy? Eh, she was a rescue, so we don't really know what her pedigree was. But Ollie had a pedigree. And you know what? We still have the papers for Buffy. Her name actually was Cherry of Bull Rage. That's what it says on the kennel papers. Okay? Um, and it gives us her genealogy, her, her background, who her parents were, who her grandparents were. Her grandparent, her grandfather was the European champion and the, the, the European Kennel Club champion. Ah, pretty good pedigree. So we wanted to breed Buffy to get puppies. We thought, hey, you know what? We can, we can breed dachshunds and make money doing this. <laughs> what a joke that was. But anyway, we took, uh, we took Buffy to the breeder and we, bre- well, first of all, we said, can we see the papers of your, of your stud? So they said, oh, this stud is amazing. His grandfather was the champion of the UK. I said, oh, really? So we compared, and, and Buffy's parents were, uh, grandfather was the champion of the UK the year before the stud's grandfather was the champion of the UK. So now we put these two dogs together, and we, have, we get all of our puppies are going to have this amazing dual champion pedigree, right? Did it work out? Well, not quite the way we wanted to, but our, our dog, Ollie, amazing. Amazing. When the breeder came to check out, we only, only, Ollie was the only puppy sur- that survived. She, was, she had two, one died, and Ollie survived. As the breeder is sitting in our lounge, as we called it over there, she says, I'll offer you, and she offered us three times the stud fee for Ollie. She said, I want that dog. I said, sorry, you can't have him. No, no, I want him. I said, listen. The vet told us that Buffy almost died having puppies. She can't have any more puppies. So we're not, we're not selling Ollie. He's not for sale. But she, because she saw in this dog an amazing pedigree. We took Ollie to the vet. And the vet says, this is the epitome of what a miniature dachshund should look like. So the pedigree, yeah. I mean, Ollie was just, I mean, he was, he was amazing. He was a great dog. He had great pedigree. And Paul is sharing with us in this text the pedigree 
that he has as an individual. Paul's pedigree is pretty impressive. If you look at it, what, what is his, he, he boasts about his pedigree, if you will. In fact, he says, you know, there's people, those, there's false teachers, he draws the lines for us. Those false teachers boast about who they are and what they have and how amazing they are. They have nothing to boast about compared to me. All right, you see down there, he says, if people have something to boast about, I have more to boast about than they do. So what is he able to boast about? What does his earthly pedigree look like? Well, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. What's so special about that? Well, that was the day a newborn Jewish baby was to be circumcised. You can check it out in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. Not before that day, not after that day, on the eighth day. And by the way, you know why the eighth day was so significant? Because it wasn't until the seventh day that the body starts to produce vitamin K that helps in the clotting process. God knew what he was doing. You do it on the eighth day. He, was, he says, I'm of the stock of Israel. You see, Paul was a Jew in the purest sense of the word. He could trace his ancestry back all the way to Abraham through Jacob and Isaac. He had it all. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, to add to his pedigree. This tribe was the highly regarded among all the other tribes of Israel. Benjamin was the second son born to Rachel, the tribe of Israel's first king. Furthermore, this tribe remained loyal to David when all the other tribes didn't, and this tribe joined Judah to form the foundation of the nation after exile. When Paul says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, everybody would say, whoa. That's pretty cool, a Benjamite. He says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. You see, both of Paul's parents were Jews, and Paul remained faithful to the Jewish traditions and heritage even while living in a pagan city. He was educated according to the Jewish ways and continued to speak the Jewish language throughout his adult life. He was educated at the field of Gamaliel, one of the premier teachers of Jewish way of life. People had questions about Judaism, about the way Jews should live life. You know who they went to? Gamaliel, Paul's teacher. Paul says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrew. He says, concerning the law, you want to talk about the law? Okay, Paul says, I'll talk about the law. I was a Pharisee. Paul came from that elite group of strict religious adherence to the Old Testament law. In fact, they were such adherences that led them to legalism and to a works-based salvation that God actually hated. But to say that you were a Pharisee, people would say, wow, Pharisee. You see, it was the Pharisees that took the lead in opposing Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah that the Father had sent. But Paul could say, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees and be proud about it. Concerning the, the righteousness of the law, Okay, you want to talk, first we talked about Pharisees, now we're going to talk about the law. Talking about the law, Paul says, hey, I was blameless. Remember that rich young ruler that came to Jesus, and, and, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you must keep the law. And, 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 the, good, and, the, and the rich young ruler says, I've done that. So in his eyes, he was blameless. Paul's the same way. In his eyes, Paul says, I was blameless. I did what the law required. He was an ardent follower of the law. He was a perfect example of what Jesus called a whitewashed sepulcher. He might have known what the law said, and he kept it to the externals, 
but he didn't have an inward relationship with God. He was clean on the outside, but he fit perfectly into what Jeremiah says, his heart was deceitful and above all things desperately wicked. MacArthur says Paul, or Saul, was not an Old Testament believer, but a proud and lost legalist. Hmm. But Paul could boast in that because it looked good on his religious resume. Paul used to be like the people he's warning the Philippians about in chapter 3. Paul wanted to make sure that the Philippians were not like them and they didn't follow them or their false teaching. So we see Paul, the, his pedigree, and how he used his pedigree to remind people, this is not what you want to be. He says, I gave it all up. I counted it all as rubbish. And that's a pretty nice word. The word actually should be translated dung. Okay? Dung. Absolutely of no worth. So let's move on. In the, in the chapter, we see Paul's purity of worship. He said, we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, those words may sound familiar to you. And why do they sound familiar? Well, it's the very words of Jesus when he encountered the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus said, there's coming a day, my friend, when you won't worship on this mountain. You won't worship in Jerusalem. But those that worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. Paul says, we worship God in spirit and in truth. You see, many Jews were concerned about outward appearances like the pedigree that Paul just listed. Jesus wanted true worshipers to know that that's not what you need to be concerned about. You need to be concerned about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about appearances, it's about the relationship. The Nelson Study Bible makes this comment. It says, Christ makes worship a matter of the heart. Truth is what is in harmony with nature and the will of God, in the nature and will of God. It is the opposite of what is false. Here the truth is specifically the worship of God through Jesus Christ. The issue is not where a person worships, but how and whom. You see, to boil it all down, Paul is saying purity of heart is more important than human accomplishments. God told Samuel this very thing when Samuel was looking for the king that God was going to appoint for Israel, the the second king. Samuel had looked at all of Jesse's sons, and from the outward perspective, he saw that any one of these strong, strapping, handsome young men would make a good king for the nation of Israel, certainly better than Saul, who was the current king. And Samuel couldn't understand why God didn't choose any one of these 11 sons of Jesse. What's the matter with these guys? They all look good to me. And what was God's response to Samuel? Samuel, there's another one. And I'm not looking at the outward appearance of these guys. You see, God, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God saw the heart of those, and he also knew the heart of David. What were Paul and Jesus getting at? Well, worship is not determined by outward appearances such as suits and ties. Or if you talk about our current pandemic, whether you wear a mask or you don't wear a mask. That has nothing to do with worship. But worship is determined by the heart. What is in our hearts? Is our heart crying out for the well-being and the, the spiritual growth of others? That's really what worship is all about. 
As, a, as men, we don't know the hearts. And so we shouldn't make a judgment on the heart. As men, we only know what we see. We kind of get a glimpse of the heart as we converse with individuals, but sometimes we don't even get that far. We've made a judgment, and so we stop. We prevent ourselves from having a conversation. But you see, God looks at the heart. And God knows the heart. God understands the heart. Well, Paul moves on. Verses 7 through 11, we see Paul the pursuer. As we bring our study in conclusion, I'm going to use that phrase, as we bring our study to a close this morning, we want to see three things that Paul pursued, and we're going to look at them very quickly. Um, If we want to follow the sound teaching, if we want to have the mind of Christ, these things will be things that we pursue. First of all, we see Paul pursued the reality of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord in verses 7 and 8. He he pursued the reality of knowing Christ. Paul considered the impressive list of religious accomplishments that he had worked towards. He considered them as a loss. Absolutely useless. He says, what things were gained to me, those I have counted as loss for Christ. We can't be committed to the things of Christ if we insist on holding on to the things the world says are spiritually important. We want to hold on to what the the word of God says is important. Paul adjusted his thinking process. Sometimes we need to adjust our thought process. Paul continued to see the things that Satan wants to put between him and serving the Lord as rubbish. We need to adjust our thinking process the same way. Satan often throws these tempting pearls before us to hinder our service. He, He throws these things out that might look good at the outset. And we start to pursue them. But Paul reminds us, you know what what we need to pursue? We need to pursue the excellence of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord and growing in that knowledge. That's what we must pursue. Not the externals. Don't get hung up on them. Satan loves it when we do. Paul says, pursue knowing Christ. And then in verse 9, the second thing we see that Paul pursued was righteousness. Paul pursued righteousness. The first requirement in in pursuing righteousness is that we be found in Christ and that we don't rely on our own righteousness. And then we must see, uh, there must be repentance in our life and trusting Christ as Savior. You see, this results in God giving or imputing to us Christ's righteousness. We're nothing in our own righteousness. Remember what it says in Isaiah, it's all filthy rags. But when God gives us Christ's righteousness, Oh, man, we have righteousness worth having. Pursuing righteousness means that I'm going to continue to live in faith. I'm going to continue to believe believe that God will do what he says he will do. And I must diligently learn and study the word of God. The only way I can know what God says is by reading, studying, and learning God's word. Paul had the continual desire and thirst for God's word in his life. And we want to have that in our lives as well. And then finally, Paul pursued the resurrection from the dead in verses 10 and 11. That may sound strange, but let me explain it this way. He says in verse 11, If by any means that I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul does not doubt that there will be a resurrection or that he will be in that resurrection. Rather, what he's saying is he's looking at this resurrection with anticipation. 
I can't wait for the resurrection. We say it this way. I can't wait for the rapture of the church. Because you know it's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump will resound, and we shall be caught up. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. Hallelujah for that moment. We're looking for it. We're anticipating it. We can't wait for it to happen. And that's what Paul is saying when he says that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. That I may arrive at it. That I may may partake in it. Verse 10 tells us what Paul is doing to make sure that he is a participant in that. He's partnering with power. He says, I might know him and the power of his resurrection. This is not to have a head knowledge of him, but it's to understand experientially personally know. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20 says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and that we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. When Paul says that I may attain with the resurrection and I'm partnering with power, he's saying that I want to have this shared life with Jesus Christ and I want him to be leading me every step of the way. He's also participating in the sufferings of Christ, that I may know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. You see, Paul understands the value of participating in the persecutions, the struggles of being a child of God. It's not easy to be a child of God. And you know what? It's getting more and more difficult in the days in which we live. But Paul says, don't give up on it. Don't turn your back on it. Continue to live for the honor and the glory of our great God. And then he's, process, he's in the process of becoming more like Christ. Paul says being conformed to his death. He's not suggesting that all of us need to physically be crucified like Christ. But instead, he is suggesting that we are obedient to the will of the Father. Remember Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. We'll close with this verse. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by what? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So as we think about this this morning, we want to understand that we, what we take home today is the fact that Paul the protector, he's impressed upon us the importance of knowing and living right teaching. Right teaching is, the only, is important because it's the only thing that can lead us to Christ-likeness. We also need to remember Paul the purebred. Even though he had all the impeccable earthly pedigree, he knew that it was more important to have a heart purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that comes out in our conversations. That comes out as we share the gospel with others. And then let us determine to be like Paul the pursuer and to strive for excellence in the knowledge of Jesus Christ that results in Christ's righteousness being made known in our lives and manifested to others. Pursue becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. What a great reminder from the pen of the Apostle Paul of being individuals who are determined to follow after your ways as they are found in the pages of Scripture. Father, keep us safe from those who will teach what is not true. Oh, it sounds good. It sounds appealing to the ears. It sounds it makes us happy to hear because sometimes it's, it sends us right in the direction that we might be leaning if we don't look at God's word first. So Father, help us to, to be committed students of the word, individuals.